Welcome back to Eyes on Golf. Brendan DeYoung is the guest coming on up. I can I can now say former PGA Tour player as he has transitioned into the broadcast world, but we talk about his PGA Tour career. We talk about him growing up in Zimbabwe, looking up to Nick Price, looking up to some of the South African players, including Ernie Els, who he would have the opportunity to play with together as a team in the President's Cup, which we had to talk about those stories, playing against Tiger Woods playing against that Keegan Bradley, Phil Mickelson team at Muirfield Village in 2013. He's got some good insight that him and Ernie had there. And we talk about his new The Wagyu Filet Show with Johnson Wagner, his teammate back at Virginia Tech. They play together now in the Charlotte area all the time and have become great friends and have a great yin and yang sort of relationship between the two of them. They have their podcast on the Five Clubs Network Always an insightful guy to have a conversation with. Does not hold back his thoughts on some fellow professional golfers and the golf industry as a whole. So Brendan DeYoung coming at you right now on Eyes on Golf. We now have on Eyes on Golf, the 2008 Corn Ferry Tour Player of the Year who won the 2008 Xerox Classic that year, as everyone perhaps remembers. The 20, a 2013 President's Cup player in 317 PGA Tour starts. How about this? 192 cuts made, 28 top 10s, 10 top fives, two runner-ups, got to number 58 in the official world golf rankings. He's on PGA Tour Live and Golf Channel. And how about this? Host of the Wagyu and Filet Show as of late, Brendan DeYoung. Welcome. How, look at that. Fa that is a celebrity status right there I just read off. I tell you what, Jeff, you have been promising to make me Twitter famous for at least two years. So I'll take this as a good start. Well, it's it's X famous, I think now. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. We worked together on PGA Tour Live for the first time. It was the uh, 2021 Northern Trust. Uh, you know, us two experienced gentlemen with Billy Kratzert, I think a rookie at the time. Um, definitely not. As we, we, we perhaps dealt with some of the intimidation of Billy. But I think it, it's interesting, too, because I was looking at your career, and I know you played you would play two PGA Tour events the following year. But when we did that work, you were starting to get your feet wet in broadcasting. And I think you were pondering the next chapter of your life. That was now two and a half years ago. Uh, when someone asks you now what you do for a living, what do you tell them? I tell them that I'm on the other side of golf now. I'm on the, uh, the side that talks about it, which is a lot more pleasurable, uh, a lot less stressful, and uh, to be honest, something that I'm really enjoying. Um, yeah, you're right. At that time, I was kind of throwing a bunch of things against the wall, seeing what would stick. And, well, you know what? Spending that week with you just kind of sealed it for me. <laughs> no, that was not it. And I do have one story that I'll have to get to later on from that week that you still – you told me a quote that I love. But I want to say – uh, around also, you know, getting to know you around that time to uh, we we know so many players that have gone into broadcasting that definitely I'm sitting next to them sometimes and I know they still have that itch. They still wish they were out there. They see guys out there. They think I could, you know, I could be doing this better than they can. Maybe if I got back into it. But I feel like you had a you had a clear head about where you are, and that's not to say that you were not a hard worker as a player, but I think you realized that you had gotten everything that you could out of golf as a professional. Am I wrong to suggest that? 
No, not even a little bit. I uh, I was ready. You know, I, I the the writing was on the wall. Um, you know, that year, I think 2017, 18, you say my last year out there, every time I teed it up in an event, the first thing that would go through my mind was why the hell am I here? <laughs> I knew I knew that I couldn't compete. I wasn't having any fun. Um, honestly, get, just getting no enjoyment from the game at the time. And uh, yeah, was I, I was done, and I, I was ready to be doing something else. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, and it it took a couple of years for me to figure out what I wanted it to be. But uh, yeah, the, the writing was definitely on the wall. You still made 19 PGA Tour starts after that season, but you mentioned 2017 to 2018, 14 PGA Tour starts, eight. Corn Ferry Tour starts that season. So you you definitely, you know, I, I, as I put in my notes, 2010 to 2015, you had this real true peak of six straight seasons of 22 plus cuts made. You made the FedEx Cup playoffs all six of those years. And that was that was it. Those were your six years in the FedEx Cup playoffs. When you look at your career, there's a very clear arc that you had. You You spent, you know, a good... 2004, 2009, bouncing around the Corn Ferry Tour, PGA Tour a little bit. Then you hit this peak, and then at the end, you know, like you said, you kind of lost a little bit of that love of the game. Uh, did it feel like that, that your career was very much on a crown? Yeah, very much so. It did. Um, you know, I, I you mentioned those years, 2010 through 2015. I just I got very comfortable, and I figured out exactly what worked for me. Um, and I, and that would be the biggest advice that I'd give to any young player. Figure out what works for you. It's uh, what works for one guy might not work for the others. Um, for me, it was I needed to I needed to play a lot and I needed to do a lot of work on my short game. I didn't like to hit balls. I'd find myself hitting balls, and it was honestly just a waste of time. Um, and yeah, I, I just got very comfortable finding the things that were going to be best for me. Well, I'll say it then that you're the line that you gave me when we called that tournament in 2021 that I still go back to is I made a joke about someone hit a drive, you know, 325, 350. And I said, Brendan, that was, that's what you were doing in your prime. Right. And you said, Jeff, I think I was pound for pound, the shortest hitter on the PGA tour. Is you know, I think, true? I think Jeff, as soon as Colt knows quit playing, I think I <laughs> took that mantra pretty quickly. I certainly became the pound for pound, the shortest hitter on tour, especially when I couldn't find the middle of the face there towards the end. Uh, this was a line from the Columbus Ditch Dispatch in 2015 about you. Uh, this was the writer's name was, let's get this guy, Ray Stein. He said, under what, this is under what he doesn't do well for Brendan DeYoung. For a man of such heft, the six-foot young is listed perhaps only a little generously at 230 pounds. He doesn't exactly bomb the ball off the tee. DeYoung ranks only 145th in driving distance at 283.1 yards. A little harsh there from Ray. <laughs> yeah, a little harsh, but you know what? I, he's not wrong, so there's not, not much that I can say. Um, yeah, you know, when I came out in, um, I guess, 2003 out of college, I used to hit this big high draw, and I'd hit the ball a long way. I figured out that that wasn't going to work for me, and I started working to eliminate the left side of the golf course and hit a fade with pretty much everything. And at that time, we were playing a golf ball in a golf club that spun a lot more. So I was hitting these fades that would they carried a lot of spin. I think for a while there, I was the, I had the highest spin rate on tour. Um, I think probably now it would have been more suited to my game if I'd come up now with the golf ball and the driver now hitting these cuts that don't spin a lot. Um, probably maybe would have got it to about 286. 
I think that, I mean, that's, that was extra three yards could have made yeah. a difference, but I think it's important that you note there because a lot of people might look at a player like you and say, okay, well, if you didn't have the distance from 2010 to 2015, you couldn't have kept up now because these guys are bombing the ball, bombing the ball, bombing the ball. But you're suggesting, I think a little bit that maybe your game could have worked now, and maybe your game could have worked in a potentially rolled back environment how has the game changed in the last decade how would you be a different player today well i think i probably obviously would have got on on track man and learned how to optimize things very early like these guys are now you know we see these youngsters that have been on a track man from the time they're eight nine ten years old they've got the ball teed up high way way forward there and they're they've learned how to optimize everything in their golf swing um obviously we grew up in a slightly different era i mean we just were getting into where you could change the settings on the driver. So, you know, it was, uh, it was certainly different. Um, yeah, I think, I think I would have spent some time on that track, man, learning how to optimize it at an early age. So that, I mean, that's the, that's a big difference in technology that I think people don't realize, um, you know, just in that decade since, and even more so, I, I want to revisit young Brendan DeYoung growing up in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, I can't imagine there were a lot of track mans around, or, or devices around when you were really getting going. What was the junior golf scene like back then in the Zimbabwe, greater South Africa region? You know, honestly, we were very, very fortunate. The club, the clubs catered to the juniors. They, they understood that junior golf was, was necessary. That was the way forward. That was a, uh, we grew up in, obviously in Zimbabwe, which is a major sporting country. Sport is such a big deal in Zimbabwe. So they, they wanted to see younger guys succeed. So members were willing to give up their golf course for a day th during school holidays. So we had probably seven or eight good golf courses that we could play and we would play at a different day. It was sort of um, designated to the juniors. So we would play one of those golf courses, a different one each day of the week. So we got to see all the best golf courses in the, in the country. Um, you know, obviously I say only seven or eight, but uh, you know, the members were so willing to let us be out there and would, would come and spend time with us and, and made us feel really welcome. And Nick Price was obviously yeah. at the time a big deal. And this was, I mean, you're growing up, this, you could argue, the, uh, the height of Zimbabwe golf from a mass perspective, from a multiple players being around uh, in the sport. So what, what did Nick Price mean for you guys as kids? Oh, everything. He was huge. You know, it was, uh, it was around that time that he was the best player in the world. Um, and Nick made a, made a point of coming back every year to play the Zimbabwe Open. Um, and, you know, and that was great for us. At the time, I was sort of 12, 13, 14 years old. We would go out and watch Nick play. And then uh, as I got a little bit older, I, I qualified for the Zimbabwe Open, I think as a 16-year-old. And that was when the first time that I really got to meet Nick, sort of pick his brain and, you know, ask him a bunch of questions. And he was so, so willing with his time, so generous with his time. You know, he, he sat there for a couple hours while a bunch of us juniors just bent his ear. Um, and it was, uh, it was pretty cool, you know, to see a guy that, that well known around the world, just in a, in a human atmosphere like that was, uh, was really, really nice for us. A three-time winner of the Zimbabwe Open, I see. Uh, mm -hmm. Nick Price, and of course, a three-time major champion too. Do you remember when the first time, uh, maybe it registered in his mind who you were, or when you got to be potentially on his radar as the next up-and-coming junior? 
Um, I, I, you know, he, he said, and I don't know if he was just being nice. He's, oh, I've, I've heard of you. I've heard that you've got a bright, bright future ahead of you. Whether he had or not, I really don't know. I actually need to ask him that, whether he was just a, just being nice. <laughs> um, but that was around the time that I was, I think I was 17 at the time. I had, I had just come over to the States and played in a couple of big AJGA events over here and had some, some decent results. Do you think, you know, when you, when you look at the sort of the timeline, obviously Gary Player in South Africa uh, was the, the first major figure that traveled around the world that yeah. put um, Africa on the map from a golf perspective. When you talk to people around that you grew up with, maybe your family, uh, friends, Nick Price, whoever it may be, um, how have you seen the sport, the evolution of the sport in that region of the world? Yeah, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Yeah, Gary Player was the first one, you know, that didn't mind getting in the back of an airplane and and traveling. He says he's the most traveled man in the world, I believe. He he says lots of things. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he uh, he was that guy. As he said, it didn't mind getting in the back of a plane, sitting there in cattle class and traveling around the world to play. And yeah, you know, it, it was it was understood that if you were coming from that part of the world, it was going to be necessary for you to travel if you wanted to play competitive golf. Like we had a, we had a great little tour over there in the Sunshine Tour, but if you wanted to kind of spread your wings, it was understood that you were going to get on a plane and oh, Africa's not that close to a lot of places. So it was going to be a, a long flight to, to go and uh, to play the competitive golf that you wanted to. Well, I think it's interesting. You mentioned an AJGA event. Um, I don't know if that was if you had, had moved to the States or I know my question was going to be, about going, how does one go from Zimbabwe to Blacksburg, Virginia at Virginia Tech? Was there a bridge in the United States when you were high school age? Or did you, when you established your first residency in the United States, was it as a Virginia Tech Hokie? Yes, that was my first residency. But we used to, uh, the Zimbabwe Junior Golf Association used to do a great job. They would send the top two juniors over to play the uh, Ledbetter Junior the Orange Ball Junior and the Doral Junior around Christmas time. And that was kind of our way to showcase our talents um, and hopefully hopefully catch the eye of a college coach and 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 get uh, get an, a scholarship for uh, for us to come over here and play. And uh, luckily enough, I won the Ledbetter Junior and uh, that kind of kind of put my name on the map as such. Yeah, well, if Wikipedia is correct, then you did that in 1998 and you won the Zimbabwe Amateur in 1999. So that was a run right there. And then you go into this Virginia Tech career. Um, how did playing college golf in the United States allow you to figure out where you really stood with the top amateurs in the game? Yeah, well, obviously, we hadn't seen a lot of those guys. Um, we, we may have seen them at some of the junior tournaments, but now you've got some of the guys that have been four years older than you, three years older than you, and watching these guys play. And it was, yeah, it was a, it was a sure way to see exactly how you stacked up. Um, I, I remember my my first uh, collegiate event, I played with Alex Roca from uh, from Mississippi State. And at the time, he was one of the really well-known uh, college players. And I was like, man, I've, I've got some work to do. But uh, it was it was nice. It was a good barometer for us. And it was kind of kind of the only way that we were really going to know. I feel like Matt Kuchar would have been at Georgia Tech right around then. Yeah. Um, I guess Virginia Tech technically would have been in the Big East if we're going way back. So um, I imagine you you know you played a variety of schools around that country, to, around the country. Did you play anyone in particular that you'd play later on 
in the oh, PGA yeah. on the PGA Tour in college? Tons of guys. I played a lot of golf with Camilo Vijegas growing up. We were the same age. Brant Snedeker growing up, same age. Uh, Bill Haas, uh, DJ Trahan. And, I mean, the best of them all was Bryce Mulder. I mean, Bryce Mulder as a collegiate golfer was just unbelievable. This guy was so much better than the rest of us, um, you know, and, and had a nice, nice PGA Tour career and then just decided that he'd had enough and more power to him for doing that. He was a teammate of Kuchers at yep. Georgia Tech uh, back then. Uh, there is uh, now I've, I've read some things, Brendan, but I got to ask during this time too. I mean, go, coming over for college, you you had to give up playing a lot of cricket. How legit were you as a youth cricket player? I was legit, Jeff. I was <laughs> legit. No, I, I mean I'll, uh, I'll I don't mean to toot my own horn by any means. No, go um, ahead. The uh, the head of selectors for the Zimbabwe cricket team, his name was uh, Andy Pycroft, who's still very, very involved in world cricket, actually drove over to my house. Um, I was on the golf course at the time with a uh, contract looking for me to sign a contract to uh, to play cricket for Zimbabwe, to stay in Zimbabwe and play cricket. Um, as I say, I was on the golf course. My dad was there and my dad said to me, he said, listen, Andy, we, we knew each other from before. And he said, I think you're a little bit too late. He's uh, he's made up his mind that he's going to go play collegiate golf. But um, it was it was a, a question that I, I posed to myself many, many times. Which would I rather do? Um, looking back, I, honestly, I th there's certainly a lot of things about cricket that I miss. I am um, the, the team aspect was number one. I love being part of a team. I love the locker room banter. Um, I did miss that when I when I chose the golf route, but college golf kind of covered that for me. We had the same sort of same sort of feeling there. But uh, yeah, no, I did. I, I played uh, I played a lot of cricket, and it was it was a question that I thought about long and hard. Not that I have any idea how this works, but what <laughs> pos what position or what was your role on a cricket team? I was a batsman, so I used to bat number three, which was. The first wicket that fell, I was the guy that came in. And then I was a slip fielder, which is the guy that's right next to the wicket keeper. Shocking bowler, but uh, of, I was I was a course. slip fielder. But I could have told you that I played anyway, and you wouldn't have known, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> How is your life different right now if you went into cricket? Um, oh, Obviously, I wouldn't be living in the States, for one, <laughs> because cricket has not taken off as much as they're trying to get it to, to grow here. It's uh, it's struggling. I'd uh, I'd probably be in the UK somewhere. So obviously would not have an American wife. Would not have American kids. Um, who knows? Who knows? It would have been uh, it would have been a different journey for sure. But you think you would have been a professional? Is the bottom line? Yes, I do. I do. I am honestly. I, I I was gonna play professional sport one way or another because that was all I knew. I uh, I'm still a sports nut. That's kind of the, the only thing that really really interests me. Um, yes, I, I do believe I would have played it professionally. Has baseball filled any of the hole in your life here in no. the United States? No, <laughs> not even a little bit, not even a little bit. Thank goodness. I get a, uh, I get a package at home called Willow cricket, so I can watch cricket <laughs> throughout the world. So I don't have to waste my time watching baseball. Uh, believe it or not. I don't know what that package is, but it sounds, <laughs> I'm not surprised. It sounds wonderful. I do know outside of golf, though, you I know that you're you're a big soccer fan as mm -hmm. well. I believe that your kids, uh, I don't know if soccer is going to be their focus over golf. Um, you know, as as you are a father, what how do you incorporate golf or other sports into, you know, your kids lives? 
Um, you know, I, I think it's a common mistake that I've seen here is the the pressure that parents put on their kids, you know, and I know this is something that's been talked about so much, but let your kids kind of, you know, go down their own path, let them figure it out for themselves. Um, luckily, both both my kids love playing soccer, and it's been kind of their thing, and it's it's stuck with them. I haven't had to push them at all. They uh, they're self motivated. They uh, they love everything about it. Really, they love the training. They love the practices. They uh, they love the games. So, luckily, I don't need to you know kind of give them a little push down the right direction. They're they're sorting that out for themselves. Um, you know, I. I, I offered to take them to play golf often. And it just, they would go with me and sort of five or six holes, they'd lose interest. And that's fine. I have no problem with that at all. I never, never pushed it upon them. Not, not even a little bit. How old are they? Uh, 15 and 13. Boys or girls? Uh, 15 year old daughter, 13 year old son. And they're, uh, they're both on a really good track right now. My, uh, my 13 year old son is in the discoveries program for, uh, Charlotte FC. So if he if he continues on this path, he'll be playing uh, playing academy soccer next year for the the major league soccer team. So so, so a, you really basically converted to MLS. Is you know maybe MLB didn't get you, but MLS did. Yeah, just changed that last letter. But a uh, big difference in watching <laughs> the sports. I, I'm very interested in soccer, baseball. Couldn't care less. Uh, I guess last question on this, Brendan. Were you a soccer player growing up? So we were forced to make a decision between playing soccer and rugby. Um, they were both winter sports and you had to choose one or the other. And I went with the rugby option. Um, I kind of wish I'd stuck to soccer. I really do enjoy it. Um, I enjoy watching it. I enjoy the X's and O's of it. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we were forced to make a decision. My, uh, my dad played, uh, played very, very competitive rugby. So it was kind of, kind of the path that I followed. I'm going to take a guess that Nick Price went more along the soccer line than, than rugby I... as a kid. I'm actually not sure on that one. I know Nick was a decent cricketer, but cricket was always a summer sport. Um, I think Nick might have played some competitive rugby as well. You know, we were, as I said earlier, as cric- um, excuse me, sport is such a big deal in our country. And, and at school, it was mandatory for you to play two summer sports and two winter sports. So summer for me was always cricket and tennis. And then in, in the wintertime was hockey and it was field hockey, which was a big sport for us and rugby. With the another Nick Price conversation, let's segue to the 2013 Presidents Cup. We are yeah. in a Presidents Cup year, 2013, right in that middle of your 2010 to 2015 peak. You are the last man technically picked by Captain Nick Price to go to Muirfield Village. You in the FedEx Cup playoffs, you go T19, T9, T18, T18. You 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 made the decision. I would think easy for him. Um, his staff as well was Zimbabwe heavy yeah. to go to Columbus uh, at that time. You had the assistant captains on that team. You had Shigeki Mariama, but you also had Mark McNulty and Tony Johnstone. So three of the four captains there are from Zimbabwe. They're able to take you. What was that entire process like that season? And what did it mean for you to get selected? Oh, it was huge. You know, it did. You said the last pick. It came down to um, myself, Mark Leishman, and Tim Clark. And he had to obviously pick two out of the three. Um, Tim didn't have a great record around uh, Muirfield Village. I luckily enough had played pretty well there, um, which which certainly didn't didn't hurt. Um, and then, as you said, had a nice run in the playoffs, so was showing a little bit of form. But uh, I remember that phone call like it was yesterday. You know, I saw Nick's number pop up and he calls me Dong. Like, Dong! 
Tell me you got a beer in your hands. I said, actually, I do, Pricey. It was about five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And I was thinking to myself, well, this could go one of two ways. Either I've got a beer in my hands to drown my sorrows or to celebrate. And he's like, well, I just want to let you know that I want you to come play for my team next year. And it was it was pretty cool, you know, to get that phone call from a childhood hero. Uh, dreams come true, really. A little reminiscent last year, Trevor Immelman's last man was, I believe, Christian Bezadenhout, you know, pulling into South Africa and for you guys being from Zimbabwe. And it wasn't this was a little bit of a different time in the President's Cup because you had the first two sessions, all 12 players on each team played. Yeah. You really only had two sessions where one pair sat. So you play all five sessions. Not only do you play all five sessions, you play all four team sessions with Ernie Els in 2013. You lost the first match one up to Steve Stricker and a young rookie named Jordan Spieth. You won your second match four and three against the aforementioned Bill Haas, who you played in college, and Hunter Mahan. Then you lose 2-1 and one to Keegan Bradley and Phil Mickelson. We're going to have to get into that. Yeah. And then you win one up against Matt Kuchar and Tiger Woods, who were 3-0 and oh going, into that part, going into that point. You lose 4-3 and three in the singles match to Jason Duffner. There's a lot of places. Why don't we go match by match here? Sure. Let's start with Steve Stricker and Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth winning the John Deere Classic that year. I believe Spieth is, I, I guess he had just turned 20 over that summer. Young whippersnapper playing with the Wiley veteran. What do you remember about that matchup? I remember Jordan being so nervous. He, he, wow. could, not, he could not do a thing for the first sort of four or five holes. And we're walking off the fifth tee. And I remember this very, very vividly. Ernie and I are behind them. And Spieth walks up to Jordan. He puts his arm around him. And he says, you know what? I've got you. You just keep going until you feel comfortable, but I've got you until then. And then all of a sudden, Jordan Spieth turned into Jordan Spieth and just started hooping it from absolutely everywhere. So, uh, you know what? I wish Steve Stricker had just shut up and not said a word because <laughs> it would have been a nice two-on-one fast break. But, uh, yeah, he uh, he said the right thing at the right time, and that, that got Jordan uh, Jordan kicked off to, uh, to a good President's Cup for him. But I do remember the nerves on that first tee. I am. Um, I had a three wood in my hand starting out in number one at Muirfield's, either a driver or a three wood. And Ernie pulls out the driver and he kind of looks at me and then he looks down at my three wood and he, he says, Boyke, maybe go with something with a bigger head. <laughs> and Boyke is obviously, you know, like my boy, the Afrikaans for my boy. And as I bent down to tee up that ball, I was shaking so much. I was so thankful that I had a driver head in my hands, not a three-wood, because there's no ways I would have been able to, to get that three-wood airborne. Were you more nervous about playing in the President's Cup, representing that international team, or playing with Ernie Els? Um, playing for the international team. I, I was comfortable around Ernie. I'd played some tournament rounds with him, um, and we actually got on very, very well. Uh, yeah, no, def definitely playing for the international team. As I say, Ernie was was very kind with his time. He, uh, he said to me during lots of those tournament rounds, I really hope you make this team. Actually, I played with him at, uh, at Deutsche Bank just a couple of weeks earlier and played nicely in front of him, which, which certainly didn't hurt because I know that he was, a, he was someone that Nick valued their opinion very, very much so. He might have been a de facto playing captain. If you, if someone wore the C like in hockey or wore an armband like in soccer, it probably would have been Ernie Els at Very that so. 
yep. at that at that Presidents Cup. Which also, I mean, you mentioned you guys get along got along well, but why was that decision made by Captain Nick Price and the team to put you two? together for all four of those team sessions you know actually uh and i was very flattered i found this out later nick told me that ernie had come up to him after we played that round at deutsche bank and said that's my partner i'm playing with him i don't care what you say so yes <laughs> maybe a little bit of a de facto captain there but uh yeah i was very very flattered when nick told me that and i mean you know what I, I i can't think of anyone i would rather have played with it was so awesome um you know Ernie didn't didn't miss a fairway. It felt like for those those four sessions. Now the putter was a little shaky at times, but uh, it was it was so much fun to play with him. And uh, yeah, we uh, we we had some success. We really did. We played we played well in all of our matches, which was nice. When Ernie Els tells you something, wants something, it's you know you could fight him or you could you could give him what he wants. That was probably uh, perhaps yeah, he's, what... he's, he's an intimidating <laughs> factor. I think it'd be uh, a little easier just to agree with him. Let's go to that second match. You and Ernie do win your second match, four and three, over Bill Haas and Hunter Mahan. So there's, I mean, you alluded to it, playing against Bill Haas over a decade earlier in college. Uh, what do you remember from that match and getting that first victory? Uh, I think Ernie and I, that was an alternate shot match, and I think we were seven under par on our on our ball there um, when we beat those guys. I remember Ernie missed the tee shot a little bit right on number nine. Um, and he said to me, just get it up somewhere around the green. That's all I need. And I got it into that front bunker. As he walks into the front bunker, he says, Boyke, this one's in. Sure enough, <laughs> holds that bunker shot. And he did a little jig like Rich Beam did when he won the PGA. Um, I wish that one had been caught on camera. But uh, that, that was fun. That was a fun match. Um, you know, we led from the start. Um, and honestly, we just we just played really, really well that day. Um, I remember watching uh, Hunter Mahan. He went over and... Uh, talk to Fred couples afterwards. And he's like, I don't think anyone would have beaten these guys. So that was a, that was a nice compliment to get from him. So that was, you're right. So you did end up the two matches you won were the alt shot matches. Yeah. Uh, you'd played your next match was a four ball, four ball match in the morning. Yeah. So at this point we're, we're coming in six and a half to five and a half is the score going into the third day. Now, Two sessions on Saturday, first match out, Ernie Els, Brendan DeYoung against Keegan Bradley and Phil Mickelson at the peak of the Keegan-Phil pairing. How did this day go? Yeah, not good. That was one that we really wanted to win. Um, I, I think Ernie and Phil had a little bit of past history as well. They Ernie didn't For care. decades. <laughs> for decades. I don't think Ernie really cared for Phil that much. Um so that was one that we really, really wanted to win. Um, I remember, I'll give you a quick story. We we're on the putting green before that match started. And at the time, Ernie was using that belly putter and he, he wasn't putting great, didn't feel comfortable over the short ones. And he missed, he missed two or three short ones and Phil kind of walked by him and uh, gave it a little, don't expect us to give you a whole lot of putts today. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that was... Uh, a little bit of fire under Ernie's belly there, but sure enough, he hits it in there about four feet on the first hole and misses. Uh, unfortunately, it was it was a long day for him with the putter. But we uh, we played well in that match as well. They just uh, they made a couple more birdies towards the end and uh, and pipped us. I think two and one in that match. I can't imagine uh, it was two and one. 
I can't imagine that Keegan and Phil did, you know, did much talking during the match, did they? That's sarcasm, oh, Brendan. God, it was brutal, Jeff. It, it was, <laughs> I mean, the amount of butt taps and and great shot this and that and whatever. And it was it was so much fuel for us to win that match. And as I say, just regret that we couldn't get across the line there because that would have been so nice to beat those guys. Was it something that was talked about in the team room at that point? Because they had played... Um, you know, they, they had obviously played in the Ryder Cup the year before, and there was just so much of this Keegan Phil, Keegan Phil, Keegan Phil. Did everyone, did people want them in the team room, or what was that like? I, t- I tell you, one of them was Cabrera. Every <laughs> single, every single day, give me Phil, give me Phil, was all we heard from Cabrera. So he wanted to play Phil in every single match if he could. And I think he actually ended up playing him in the singles match and beating him. But it was, uh, yeah, give me Phil. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, it was talked about. I don't think anyone really cared for their antics on the golf course. Um, it was a little bit frustrating to play against, but they, they played well. Angel Cabrera did beat Phil Mickelson one up in the finals sing- final singles match yeah. uh, on Sunday. So it didn't quite matter. It was the last match finished. I'm sure if you ask Phil now, he might say that, oh, well, you know, it was the end. It was, I'm we had sure already won. Would. And I'm sure Angel Cabrera, uh, if he makes it up to the States this year, will uh, <laughs> would say that, that yeah. he was, Phil was giving it his all. Uh, that, that's a that big if, if, if Cabrera is going to set foot in the States this year. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll leave it at we'll leave it at that. Uh the last foursomes match, you and Ernie did win one up against Tiger Woods and Matt Kuchar. We mentioned Steve Stricker playing with Jordan Spieth. Kind of the big story here was that that Stricker Woods pairing was dropped after they had struggled at Medina in the Ryder Cup the year before. But he had had success with Kuchar all week and you and Ernie found something to set up maybe a run for the internationals. On Sunday, what do you remember about that Saturday afternoon matchup? It was a, a Saturday afternoon match that went into Sunday. The weather was absolutely brutal that week. Um, I think as when the match finished, we were two up at the time. Um, got called off for rain, just another torrential downpour. I, you know, shout out to the ground staff that week. They did a fantastic job. But I do remember we had it. We were three up with four holes to go. And I mean we were thinking like just play solid these last four holes and we'll close this thing out. And then tiger hits a five wood or a three wood to sort of two feet on number 15. They make Eagle there. Then I just dump one straight in the middle of the pond on 16, give them that hole. So I think we're one up with two to go. And then uh, I believe Cooch hits a great shot into 17 and Tiger misses the putt. Thank goodness. So we one up going up 18. And as I mentioned, Ernie was kind of struggling with the putter at the time. I drove him into those right fairway bunkers, not in a terrible spot. He didn't hit a great shot out there, um, sort of short right of the bunker. Luckily enough, stayed in the fairway. We were playing lift clean in place. I was able to get my hands on it. And I chipped something up to there to about four or five feet. So the range that he had been struggling with all week and struggling with all year. And he just absolutely buried that putt. And I tell you what, for for a guy that's achieved so much in the game, he was so excited after he made that putt. And I mean, it was... It was it was a cool feeling. It really was. You know, he obviously had so much history with Tiger. Tiger had pipped him in so many events. So it meant a lot to someone like Ernie to actually get one over Tiger like that. Ten years to their um, their playoff battle in South Africa mm-hmm. in 2003 uh, during the Tide 
President's Cup when they really just kept going uh, blow for blow down the stretch there. Last match there, you do lose singles four and three to Jason Duffner. For people that might not understand that, you know, see Duff now, this was peak Jason Duffner had just won the PGA um, and got the best of you there in a in a big matchup in all senses of the word. Yeah, it was. You know, and he he played he's played such a good round of golf. Um, you know, I think at the time when he beat me, he was sort of six or seven under par and had missed a couple short putts as Duffner tends to do. Um, but it was it, it was a ball striking clinic. I uh, I, I sat down after the fact and I I went through it and I'd actually given him four putts from the fairway. He'd hit it in there to to about a foot. And it was just it was. And it was it was one of those where he was just on and, and he walked off the, the course and again went to Fred Couples and be like, Man, I was I was feeling it today. And so it was uh it made me feel a little bit better, I guess. Well, that's what when people talk about his week at Oak Hill, uh, same sort of thing. You know, this was uh probably a few month a few months there when Jason Duffner was just automatic with every yeah. approach shot. Yeah, so it was, it was you, you impressive. Hit him, you hit him at a rough time, but when you look back at that 2013 President's Cup and you think about all the things that you did in the game of golf, have done and are still doing, where does that week rank in your experiences? It's top, not even a close second. It's top. You know, the uh, unfortunately we we got robbed of a lot of time in that team room by the fact that the weather was so bad. We uh we wouldn't be back every evening until sort of nine ten o'clock at night, and then we had to leave at five in the morning, just, you know, trying to play catch up the entire time. But, um, you know, the, how tight everybody was and getting to know all these guys, families and stuff. It, it, Nick did such a great job of incorporating everybody in there, opened up the team room, let, let all the families in there. And it was, a, it really was cool to figure out, you know, what made these guys tick, you know, I knew Adam Scott, I didn't know him well. And I, I spent so much time with Adam, you know, that week. And it was, uh, it was really, really fun. And, and then to stay in touch with guys after the fact, you know, it wasn't all right, this week's done. We're, uh, you know, continuing our lives as they were, you, uh, you stayed in touch and uh, you became close friends with a lot of these guys. Adam and Ernie, it's interesting, right? So Adam that year won the masters, Mm -hmm. but that was a year after he, he bogeyed the last four holes of that open championship and Ernie won his final Major, I always wonder when guys experience something like that and then have to be teammates. Uh, do you remember what was their relationship like? Oh, it was fantastic. They, they've always been great friends. Um, you know, I, I think Ernie genuinely felt really bad for Adam when he when he threw that British Open away. Um, you know, not only that one, Adam had beaten Angel Cabrera in a playoff to win the Masters, and we're uh, we're actually sitting at a table at dinner, and Johan Rupert the South African billionaire who's very involved with South African golf is sitting there telling you, oh, Adam, I was so happy to see you win that tournament. That was fantastic to see. And Angel Cabrera is sitting right next to him and Rupert had forgotten that Cabrera was who Adam beat in the in that playoff there. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, guys understand that there has to be a winner and a loser. And it's a it's a it's a big part of golf. And um, yeah, there was no animosity at all in the in that team room from anybody. I tell you what, though, Jeff, I have one of my biggest regrets ever from the President's Cup, actually. So we finished all of our matches. Um, I'd already been beaten by Duffner, and we're walking down the 18th hole um, watching, I believe, Graham DeLette's match. And a, a streaker takes off down, uh, down the 18th hole, and she runs probably 
10, 15 feet away from wh- where I was, I could have absolutely laid her out. <laughs> And it would have been it would have been been everywhere for a long time. I mean, I would have just had to take three or four steps and just laid her out. But she yeah, she took off down the fairway and then headed off into the woods, never to be seen again. It would have been viral before there were such things as viral. <laughs> you yeah. know, you said you wanted to be Twitter famous. You could have done this eleven years ago, Brendan. I wouldn't have even needed your help. <laughs> you know, right? That was a year after the uh, the bird guy invaded the Webb Simpson interview at the U.S. Open at Olympic in 2012. That streaker must not have known that she was running right past a junior rugby player. Yeah, I know she didn't. She didn't uh, didn't inspect her clientele very well, but uh, I don't know. She was pretty quick. She probably would have gone away from me. Uh, Graham DeLette won one up against rookie Jordan Spieth at that President's right. Cup for what it's worth. It was actually <laughs> great. I, I worked this last year with Graham DeLette and Colin Swatton on a broadcast and Colin Swatton was Jason Day's caddy and they had played together all week during that right. President's yep. Cup. Now let's let's transition to this President's Cup because we are in a President's Cup year 11 years later uh, going to Royal Montreal. I know for for you and so many President's Cup alums, uh, you know, you still feel feel close to everything. I've talked to Craig Perks a lot, who talks about the the international shield really uniting the current version of the team. Um, you know, 2019, it definitely felt like Royal Melbourne was a really good, close competition. Perhaps two years ago, a few players last minute taken yeah. off that squad, deflated a lot, although there was a lot of energy and a lot of reason to be excited about that team we're coming up this year points are being accumulated i want to hear if you have your 12 guys for the internationals right now i do have my 12 guys before i before i give you those names i I do want to say though i think i think it's really important for the internationals to win one of these soon you know Mm -hmm. they've only won once Uh, i think what 1998 at royal melbourne is the only one that they've won for this this competition to to carry the weight that it does, the internationals really need to win this one. And I, honestly, I've been looking through through a lot of these names and watching these guys, and I think they're going to have a strong team. Now, what this team's going to look like, a lot of that's also going to depend on what happens with this this live golf. Um, is something going to be resolved in time? Are we going to see a Cam Smith playing for the international team? But um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see. But there are a lot of young guys that are coming up that are uh, they're going to carry a, a lot of weight for that uh, international team. I, I have my list, too. I, I'm going to want you to go first. We should mention we're doing this before the WM Phoenix Open. I think we're going to release this next week, Brendan. So if someone wins this week yeah. and we don't have them, uh, we're, let's cover our tracks and mention that. Uh, Joaquin Neiman obviously just won on Live Golf. You know, there's a world where Joaquin Neiman, Cam Smith, uh, really, I'll tell you what, it's not as deep as maybe two years ago. We would have been talking about a lot more guys. We would have been talking about Abraham Anser. We would have been talking about Mito Pereira, Sebastian Munoz. Yeah. Sebastian Munoz was, and Pereira were on that team two years ago. Maybe don't feel the same way necessarily about them, but definitely Neiman and Cam Smith would be two names. With that said, like you just said, I looked up and down this list. I was surprised by guys I had to leave off my list, yeah, but I'll yeah. let you go first. All right. So I think, well, I would put Adam Scott. He would be my first name down regardless okay. of how he's playing. You know, you need some veteran leadership there. Adam's played in 10 of these things. He would be there, as I say, regardless of what his form's like at the time. Then I've got uh, Hideki Matsuyama, Tom Kim, Jason Day, Sanjay Yim, Ryan Fox, 
Minwoo Lee, Corey Connors, Mackenzie Hughes, Emiliano Grio, Christian Bezadenhout, Rio Hisatsune. Oh, so for people that don't know that last pick, Rio Hisatsune from Japan was the Sir Henry Cotton Award winner last year on the DP World Tour, Rookie of the Year on the DP World Tour. He was the 10th player of the 10 players to get their PGA Tour cards by way of race to Dubai points. So that means 10th player in the standings who was not already who did not already have a PGA Tour card. So I believe he knocked out Rasmus Hoygaard. Yeah, I know that I'm sure there will be some conversation now that Adrian Moronk has gone to um, live golf. Should Rasmus Hoygaard get a retroactive PGA Tour card? Uh, I think that'll be a conversation for another day. But so that's that's big because um, I had so I had Hisatsune way down my list right now at number 20. Okay, uh, I'll tell you. And I think I think we had eight or nine of the same guys here. I have Tom Kim, Sung J M, Siwoo Kim, Hideki Matsuyama as my four locks. And I think it's interesting that your team in 2013, uh, going back, I believe there was only one Asian player on that roster. So, Hideki. and that was Hideki Matsuyama. So yep. the demographic of the internationals has definitely changed over the years. I just named four Asian players, three Koreans, who I think. I think based on the standings that we've already seen and based on their performance, based on their performance two years ago, those are my four locks. I have Adam Scott and Jason Day next on the list. Uh, sort of what you had mentioned. You mentioned Adam Scott. Uh, you said it doesn't matter what form he's in. He's in. He's been in, on every International Presidents Cup roster since 2003. So you, you, you saw what happened with Team USA and Phil Mickelson in the last few years of keeping him on those rosters and kind of the streak of him being on international rosters. So I, I do wonder when the time that Adam Scott will exit that roster will be. I don't think it's now. I think I agree with you that he'll be there. He does need to find some form. He's getting sponsors invites right now to signature events. So it's going to yeah. be interesting to see if he can play his way more into those events and what goes on with Adam Scott's season. But yeah, he, him and Jason day who was not on, I believe Jason Day was not on the last two President's Cup rosters. He had gotten injured in 2019, still up in the air if he would have been picked or not. But I think he makes it back. I have Corey Connors on the list, top-ranked Canadian right now, playing in Canada. There'll be some, if, if he starts fading a little bit, there'll be some people who start saying, hey, he did not show up at Quail Hollow two years ago. But I think I think we're both in agreement as the top Canadian and likely if he continues the form that he's been in the last couple of years, it's going to be hard to leave him off. I have Nick Taylor on here, number eight. You had okay. Mackenzie Hughes on yeah. there. I was a little surprised Mackenzie Hughes was not on the team two years ago because yeah. him and Corey Connors have such history playing together, growing up in Canada, playing together at Kent State. I thought that they were going to be the Canadian pairing together. Taylor Pendrith ended up getting that spot not Mackenzie Hughes. He has spoken so much about how badly he wants to get into the President's Cup. A, a, one of the best putters and one of the best chippers in the game. Hard to imagine that he will be left off, but I have him off right now, and I have Nick Taylor as the second Canadian because we saw what he did last year. We've seen what, he, what he's done in big spots. We've got the Phoenix Open coming up this week. Runner-up last year, won the RBC Canadian Open, 
feels like an energy guy that they need yeah. on that list. Before yeah, I continue, the, I guess, what's your take on Nick? Yeah, I, I do agree with you there. I, well, I agree more the fact that there will be two Canadians on that team. Um, you know, I, I, I think you agree that, yeah, Corey Connors is, is going to be the top Canadian. Um, Mackenzie Hughes was the name that I put down because I played a lot of golf with Mac and continue to play a lot of golf with him. And he was, he was genuinely hurt by the fact that he didn't make Trevor's team, felt like he had done enough. Um, but he's one of those guys that would use that as the motivation in the correct way. He's not going to sit there and pout. He's, uh, he's going to get up and kind of dust himself off and, and do what it takes to make that team. So I'd be very surprised if Mackenzie Hughes doesn't play his way onto, onto that international team. So that's one place where we right now are in disagreement. Mm -hmm. uh, Minwoo Lee, I believe you had on your list. I have been on on the list. I don't know if you said been on, but I did not. Ben on was on the team in 2019. Amazing when you think about it, that he ended up going back to the corn Ferry tour uh, last year, played his way back onto the PGA tour and has been um, outstanding since being back on the PGA tour. And this year has got off to a red hot start. Um, or so he was back on the PGA tour last year, I believe. Sorry about that. Um, I was, yeah, sorry. I was, I was between Christian Bazadenhout and Ben on was my, uh, my last pick there. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think you can go wrong with either of those guys. Two very completely different games. Ben on just an absolute flusher. Bazadenhout, one of the best putters out there. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of that those picks are going to be who matches up best with uh, with um, their teammates. So, it, are they going to be in need of a putter, or are they going to be in need of a of a hitter, of a striper? So, it'll be be interesting to see when uh, when it comes down to time to select that team. And that's important because I've just listed Connors, Taylor, Minwoo Lee, Ben on. Those are flushers. Those are yeah. not putters. Um, I've got two guys left on this list. I've got Christian Bezadenhout, who I do have on. Um, was on the team two years ago, kind of last man on, played well, putted well. We already saw that runner up at the American Express. Um, I do think, I think you can agree on this, that there's always going to be a little bit of a push to get at least one South African on the roster to spread around the international flair. Um, and if he can continue to be that putter and improve by all, by all stretch, you know, by everything that we're seeing so far in the early 2024, he's playing his best golf arguably of his career right now. So yeah. there's a reason to believe that he can get there. And then the 12th guy, I don't think you had on your list, but I have Cam Davis on the, the list who was outstanding at the president's cup two years ago, early on. Um, obviously one of the premier strikers of the golf ball right now, there are holes in his game that need to be fixed, but from a match play standpoint, I think he's the type of guy that you want in your corner. No, I didn't have Cam Davis. I had Ryan Fox. Um, I think yes. Ryan Fox is a guy that um, not not too many people over here know much about, but I think they will pretty soon. Uh, son of a former All Black great. Um, I've played a lot of golf with Ryan. He, uh, this guy's good, and he's he's got the got the right temperament for the big occasions as well. Um, he's performed well in some big events on the DP World Tour, and I think as we start seeing more and more of uh, Ryan Fox, it's going to be a name that uh, that gets thrown around quite a bit. But I think, I mean, from from what we've got on these two lists, there we can agree that there are a lot of guys, and there is a lot of talent on that international team. Just some of the short list off the list. I had KH Lee, who was on the team two years ago. Uh, would add to that Korean core was out was really strong two years ago and has been a really consistent player now for the last two to three years in the PGA Tour. S.H. Kim 
is was the rookie of the year two years ago on the Corn Ferry Tour, a premier ball striker of the golf ball. He could play his way onto the team. I've got Ryan Fox here by points. Ryan Fox is gonna is going to hover around the top of the points list. We're going to see probably a lot more Ryan Fox stateside coming up on the PGA Tour. I know that that was uh, a hard call. Trevor Immelman mentioned it's kind of alluded to Ryan Fox and Mackenzie Hughes as the last guys that he had to cut from the last team. Um, Ryan Fox, I think, has known that he might need to play more on the PGA Tour side to get that call. So he'll be coming over shortly. I have Emiliano Grillo on here, who you put on. Yeah. And it's such an interesting one because he came out of the gates flying on the PGA Tour, I believe made his first two President's Cups that he was eligible for uh, in 2015 and 2017, maybe even 2019. Hasn't made it since. Uh, I'm going to pull that up so so I don't I sound like I know what I'm talking about here, uh, Brendan. But with Emiliano Grillo, he has to be disappointed that the President's Cup was not last year. Actually, he only made the team in 2017. But he has to be so disappointed that the president's cup wasn't last year when he had such an elite season, got back in the winner's circle. Uh, he'll need to bounce back this year and put together another strong season because of how competitive we're talking about this field. I have Eric Van Royen also on the list would have been on the team two years ago. If he didn't get hurt, Adam Hadwin, Mackenzie Hughes will be right around that Canadian part of the list. Like I said, I had Rio Hisatsune, who you have on the team. I had him at 20 and I have one wild card for you. Yeah, Fred Biondi is on the Corn Ferry Tour this year yep. from Brazil, NCAA champion last year, individual champion for the University of Florida. He's the one guy that I look down the list and say, this is the type of guy who can get that battlefield promotion at some point in the year and maybe be what Ludwig Aberg, Ludwig Oberg, sorry, mm -hmm. was, on, was for uh, Team Europe last year at the uh at the Ryder Cup that's that that is the short list that I have right now yeah it's a it's a very interesting list I you know I and I I can't stop but I, I ask myself all the time is there a world in where say Joaquin Neiman Cam Smith go out and win a bunch of live events where Mike Weir picks a couple guys like that for his wildcard picks I uh I wouldn't be surprised at all I really wouldn't that's going to be sort of an eligibility conversation. Yeah. Obviously the president's cup is run by the PGA, PGA tour, America. not, yeah. not, not the PGA, not PGA of America, America like me. the Ryder yeah. cup. Um, so there's, there, there's some, and, and I mean, it's fair to ask how competitive would this event be if you did have some of those players? And that's where I think I was disappointed um, two years ago, seeing those guys leave really right before, I mean, Cam Smith and Joaquin Neiman left right before the president's cup. They left after the tour championship and before the president's cup that year. Yeah. The timing of that was very, very peculiar. It sort of, it makes you wonder was something in their live contract that said, you know, you have X amount of days to sign this and you cannot wait until after the president's cup, which, which I would imagine is what it read. The fact that they left when they did, um, who knows? But yeah, I, as I said earlier, I think that it really is important for the, the international team to win this and, and worst case scenario, really take it all the way down, uh, down to the wire. I didn't ask you to create a Team USA, but I have one if you want okay. to hear my team. I, I would like to hear it. Yep. So I have unlike I had four locks for the internationals. I have seven locks for Team USA here. Scotty Scheffler, Patrick Cantlay, Xander Shoffley. Justin Thomas, 
who I think if he was, if he made the team last year, the way that he's playing this year, uh, he's a lock now. Max Homa, Wyndham Clark, and Colin Morikawa. Now, some of that is by points, like what Wyndham Clark just did by winning the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. He has also catapulted himself near the top of the points list. So it's going to help him uh, definitely strengthen his resume. And I think what he's done over the last two years, I think he he now becomes part of this group. Morikawa, even last year, there was some sort of Ryder Cup talk where people started looking around saying, are we sure Morikawa is a lock as a captain's pick for this team? But I think the way that he strikes the golf ball, the consistency, when you look at all the strokes gain numbers, he might not be winning at the clip that we expected him to, but I think the um, I think the consistency matters. Now, my next five, it does get interesting for Team USA. I've got Spieth on the team. I'm yeah. not making Jordan Spieth a lock because he could fall off the planet at any point. But if he's within, if he's if he's within the solar system, uh, I think he still gets picked for this team. I think Sam Burns, especially getting that captain's pick last year, seems to suggest that he's part of this core for the long run. I've got Sahith Thigala making yeah. a Team USA for the first time this year. I think he steps up. I think Cameron Young bounces back, and the twelfth man could go to really anyone right now. I'm going to throw out a wild card of JT Poston. The okay. way that he finished last season, the way that he puts the ball, the way that he plays, um, I could see him as a great fit for this team at Royal Montreal. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Um, yeah, the, I, listen, anyway, uh, anyway you look at it, it's an embarrassment of riches for that U.S. team. There is uh, so much talent there. And I mean, I, I think that Tony Finau is going to have a big year. I really do. I think Tony Tony's primed for a big year. He's hasn't played his best um, up to date for the last – I guess year or two um, would not be at all surprised to see him, uh, see him play his way onto that team. Um, I also think Keegan Bradley's going to use the motivation of not getting picked for that Ryder cup team as a, in the right way as a, as a Mackenzie Hughes is. I, I think he's going to, going to have a big year as well. Very comfortable with that putter at the moment. And, you know, Keegan's always going to be an elite ball striker. So wouldn't be at all surprised to see him throw his name in the mix come, uh, come August time when those picks are made September time. Yeah, I have Keegan and Tony on the short list. I think it still goes to Keegan's got to impress or almost get into that top yeah. six yeah. to get a spot. Um, Tony, I was a little surprised that he didn't end up in the Ryder Cup captain's pick conversation because he had been on every Team USA going back to 2018 before last year. So you're right. There's an opportunity here for him to prove that he can be a part of these teams, have some motivation, bounce back, um, had the had had a moment there at the farmers earlier this year where it looked like he might make a run uh the putter was yeah uh, halfway up in the air into the pacific ocean that might have contributed to some of his issues but if he can figure that out he certainly gets in the conversation and then just a few names that i have on here we don't know what we're getting from will zalatoris i don't think it would shock me it's hard to believe that will zalatoris hasn't played on a professional team usa at this point but if he returns to form well, we can see Will Zalatoris rip off a few top tens over the summer and easily, if he does enough, be a part of this team as a guy who could be on many teams in the future if healthy. And then the two young names that we have to throw out, Akshay Batia, who knows what we're going to get from him, and Nick Dunlap, who yeah. went from first to last in turning <laughs> pro at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. But there's, you, we just talked about you playing Spieth years ago. 
there's always been this history in the President's Cup of Team USA using some of those picks on young players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I would not be at all surprised to see Akshay's name in there. Um, he's he's getting more and more comfortable as a pro, and it's. I, I agree with you. I think the US have used it kind of as a bridge to the next the next group, um, and so on and so on. So yeah, I would not be at all surprised to see a young guy get that pick. I didn't say Tiger Woods, but I guess we. I guess you just never know. You never know. I, I'm <laughs> never gonna say he has no chance. I know that. <laughs> I I do want to know what would happen if Tiger. JT and Spieth were on a team together. They really, it was just 2018 that that was the case. 2019, Tiger and JT were great at Royal Melbourne together. I mean, is Tiger just going to say, sorry, Jordan, but uh, go find another partner? Uh, I think so. I think Tiger has whoever he wants as his partner. <laughs> he has first dibs on anybody. And I, I think him and, and JT obviously have a, have a great bond, as do JT and Justin. But it would be, it would be interesting to see. We've talked way more about the President's Cup than I expected, but the last yeah. question I have for you is what can we do to improve the President's Cup? Uh, you know, you were a part of this 11 years ago. You've watched it over the years. What do you want to see out of this competition? Yeah, you know, I, I touched on it that I think the internationals need to win. And I think I remember having a long conversation, and Nick, Nick Price had some heated conversations with then-Commissioner Tim Fincham about this, that you want the points system to mirror that of the Ryder Cup. For the longest time, the President's Cup played for too many points. They played for 34 points. Any time that you're playing for that amount of points, you don't have the ability to hide guys. And the President's Cup, generally the international team, is slightly weaker towards the bottom than the Americans are. You know, you take out a couple a couple games out of each each session, and all of a sudden that brings that points a lot closer. So I would love to see them play for, for 28 points. I think right now maybe it's at 30. I believe um, I'll, I'll check. I believe there's I think, there might be two sessions a, of five of yeah, five I, uh, team events. Right. I feel like it's at thirty. I would love to see it at twenty eight. You know, it's been proven that that model for the Ryder Cup works. It really does. You got a couple guys that aren't playing well. You sit them, um, and you know, obviously, you you make the points smaller. It's gonna it's gonna bring everything a lot closer. So that would be that would be number one for me to to make this competition better. Yeah, it was at it was out of thirty points. Yeah. in uh 2022 so assuming yeah, I, that i would love to see that turn into 28 points uh moving on before we let before i let you go i got to talk about the wagyu and filet show you and johnson wagner uh which sort of you know I, it's amazing getting to know you guys and knowing how close you are uh two guys from very different parts of the planet who've become such good friends what's your relationship with johnson like Oh, it's fantastic. We uh, we go way back. You know, I, I remember one of the first times I met him, he gave me a ride and we were going uh, going to another, somebody else's house to go have a couple of beers. And, uh, and we kind of, we got out of the car and he's like, man, I, do you guys in Africa wear deodorant? And I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? I shower a whole lot more than you do. Anyway, it turned out that there was a, a pretty bad BO stench in his car. And it was from another one of the freshmen that were on the team. This guy obviously didn't wear a whole lot of deodorant. But uh, that he was like, you guys from Africa wear deodorant? And that was kind of my introduction to Johnson. Um, but now we get on very, very well. Our wives um, are good friends as well. So it's, it's easy. And, you know, this uh, this Wagyu and Filet show, we are... Uh, 
there were so many nights that we were sitting around drunken around a fire at Calusa Pines or just throwing ideas about, and you know, we talked about it enough times to where you, we, we kind of did something about it and, and took the reins and, and started a show together. And it's been a whole lot of fun. It really has. It's uh, you know, we're going for that sort of concept of a little bit of locker room talk without, without throwing anybody under the bus. I'm um, just telling <laughs> stories, you know, I think between the two of us, we've played somewhere probably close to 700 events and accumulated some pretty good stories through those 700 events. And as I say, it's been a lot of fun so far. And you, we should mention, you talk about going for that drive. You guys played at Virginia tech together. You live in the Charlotte area together right now. You played on the PGA tour together. So you, you have so much of a history. Uh, take me through the name of the show. Well, I, uh, my l- nickname on tour was filet for the longest time. Um, one of the Australian caddies, it was it was either Brendan De Jong, Filet Mignon, that was why that worked out, or I was just a, a big piece of meat. What, one or the other, it depends who you ask, but Filet was my nickname for the longest time. And then obviously Wagner turned into Wagyu, and it just, uh, just kind of worked. I don't see Filet as a big piece of meat. I think Petite <laughs> Filet, you know, I think... No, I'm not a no, petite filet. I'm a, I'm a king size filet. <laughs> no T-bone or porterhouse or anything no, no, like no. that. I'm a big filet. Uh, now, seeing golf from the other side, we talked about it a little bit about seeing golf as a broadcaster, as an analyst. What do you see in the sport that you perhaps didn't see when you were a player? Um, that and and I hate to say it because I was never a big name, but the big names drive the sport. They really do. You know, you, you want to see your, your biggest names on the top of the leaderboards. Um, as I say, I, I was never one of those guys. I was a guy that made a nice living out of it, but by under no means was I one of the biggest names. So I, I've, I've noticed that I've, I've, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out, that you do, you need the big names to be playing well to, to drive the sport. So in, in kind of, modern vernacular you would call yourself a mule like johnson has leaned yeah. into yeah i would fit right into that mule category i'd be a, a pack mule with <laughs> let, laid up with all kinds of stuff on me that's uh maybe that could have been the mule show could have been an option but wagyu yeah. and filet i um, think that might have got thrown around a little bit <laughs> uh brendan the important question is where can people find you in the internet right now Jeff, you can find us on all the platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on YouTube. Um, we're just getting going, but uh, we're having a lot of fun of it and uh, a lot of fun with it, excuse me. And, and, you know, I think that's that's kind of what we want. We want people to to listen to us, to to realize that we don't take ourselves too seriously either. You know, we are, we like to have fun. We like to mess around. We like to give each other shit. We really do. We've we've known each other for a long time. We're, we're very comfortable taking the piss out on each other. So it's a... Uh, it's it's a fun show, and uh, you know, hopefully, it uh, continues to grow. And it is at Brendan DeYoung, B R E N D O N D E J O N G E on the Twitter or X sphere. Your your bio here: PGA Tour player turned media man, sport fan at the highest order. Love a good steak. That's right, I, and that's that basically defines what we've talked about the last <laughs> hour, Brendan. Thanks so much for making this work. I'm excited to make you Twitter famous. Hey, Jeff, it's about time. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Thanks to Brendan. Thanks to all of you for listening. We're now hitting double digits, episode 10. So appreciate those who have been with us for the, for the single digits era. We're going big. 
in the double digits area. I got some great guests coming up. I'm really excited about. If you're not following on social, it is Eyes on Golf, E I S O N G O L F, on our social channels. And if you like what you heard today and you're not following, hit subscribe for more episodes coming up. Appreciate it. And once again, thank you for listening to Eyes on Golf.